Good morning. Uh, it is great to be here this morning. Uh, I, find, I kind of feel like I'm coming back home. Uh, this is the church where I really got my start in youth ministry back in the early 1980s when I was in college and attending here. The youth pastor at this church asked me to be involved in junior high ministry, and that started at the time, I didn't know it, but that started a career path for me where I was a youth pastor in a church for 17 years. And then I got the privilege of starting to do missions with Rain Ministries and taking students on mission trips with royal servants. I tell people I have the greatest job in the world because I get to take students to countries they've never thought about going to, maybe even couldn't find on a map. And they end up there and they learn how to love Jesus deeper than what they did before, some of them for the first time and they learn how to serve other people. So what's, what's better than that, right? I love what I do. I wanna introduce you to my lovely wife, Heidi. She'll stand up real quick. She, Heidi is a public school, uh, middle school math and algebra teacher. God bless her, right? <laughs> she's been doing that for a long time and she's an amazing woman because at the end of the school year, she turns around and goes with me for a couple months with another group of students overseas and it's been a blessing. <laughs> We're coming on this next August, will be our 35th wedding anniversary, so. Uh, and we're excited to be here this, with, you, with you this morning. It was really exciting to be here for worship. Thank you to the worship team. Uh, that one song, Yet Not I, But Christ In Me, is one of my favorite worship songs, and you guys did it so beautifully, thank you. This morning, I get to talk about one of my favorite passages of scripture, and we're gonna take a little tour through a couple chapters in Acts. We're gonna focus on the main part of that. And I, I just want to read it for us as we get started. It'll be up on the screen, so follow along with me. On the next day, this is Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 12. And it's going to be kind of like getting thrown into the end of a story, but then we're going to go back and see what happened next, or what happened beforehand to lead us to what happened now. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. Then Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved." As I said earlier, it's kind of the end of a story. You look at that and you think, wow, something big had to happen beforehand. And we're gonna go back and take a look at that in a moment, but let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning you would use your word to speak to each one of us. Whatever situation's going in our life when we walk through these doors, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and show us something that maybe we hadn't thought of before that could change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna take a look back to the beginning of Acts chapter two to figure out what happened before this. And the, the first verse of Acts chapter two says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know about this day of Pentecost thing because we often think that the day of Pentecost started when God sent his Holy Spirit that we're about to look at. And if you know that story, we'll get into it in just a moment, but God sends his Holy Spirit and we think, okay, that was when Pentecost was initiated. That's what I always thought until I started really looking into it. What the day of Pentecost was though, was it, it was a, a Jewish holiday that had been around since the time of Moses. All the way back to Leviticus chapter 23, when God gives Moses the details of what the Jewish holy days are gonna be, part of that was what was called the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks was a celebration where able-bodied people from all over, Jeru- all over Israel would come to Jerusalem to give sacrifices in honor to God for their wheat harvest that they had taken in that year. So they were obligated to come to Jerusalem and do that. And that was what this festival was on the Feast of Weeks. And it happened 50 days, or it happened seven weeks and a day, which 50 days after Passover, which Passover we know is one of the other holy days of Israel's calendar. So this day of Pentecost was a thing for many years before. And on this particular day of Pentecost, after Jesus had died 50 days earlier on Passover, that's a whole nother sermon. But on Passover, Jesus died. Then 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, when all these people were in Jerusalem, God decided that was the day to bring his Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised before. So they're gathered. It says they're gathered in one place. Now, who was it that was gathered? Probably it was at least the 12 disciples and maybe up to 120 people that are mentioned in other places in the New Testament that were part of that early church that had followed Jesus early on and now were gathering regularly. So we don't know exactly who was in this house that it talks about in the rest of chapter two. But if you've read that before or you know the story, you know what happened. There was a huge rushing wind that came in with a lot of noise and all of a sudden, everybody that was gathered there began to speak in an unknown language. Pretty wild, huh? (laughs) They began to speak in an unknown language and even crazier than that, all of a sudden they were understanding what somebody else was saying, even though nobody knew these languages. So it was a pretty wild event and it caused such a stir and such a ruckus that people from all over the place, remember all those people that are gathered in Jerusalem for this festival, started coming to figure out what was going on. And because there was a lot of people there and nobody knew what was happening, Peter decides to step up and explain what's happening. And the rest of chapter two then is Peter declaring boldly the message of how Jesus had come as the fulfillment of all the law from the Old Testament and all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Peter beautifully points to Jesus as the fulfillment of all those things, which takes us all the way down into um, the next part of it, where in, in Acts, following all those verses in Acts chapter two, we get to a place where all these people had come, Peter explained what it was, and he weaves together this message. And then Acts 2.41 says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's pretty exciting, right? (laughs) 3,000 new souls coming into this new church that had been around. Remember, it had only been about 50 days Since Jesus died and this early church is going on, the leaders are trying to figure out how to make this thing progress. And then 3,000 people coming to Christ on the the same day. Think of what that would be like here. (laughs) A month ago, you guys had your Christmas services, right? 
Think about what it would have been like if enough people would have been coming to your Christmas services and through the powerful messages that your leaders were giving at Christmas, 3,000 new people came to be Christ followers. Wow, that'd be cool, but it might also present just a little bit of a programming difficulty. Because <laughs> how are you gonna care for all these new people? What are you gonna have them do? Well, that, that's what they had to deal with there. So what did these new Christians do? We see that when we get to Acts 2, 42 to 47, and that will be up on the screen as well, I think. Okay, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Doesn't that sound cool? That sounds like a great church to be part of. Everyone meeting each other's needs on a regular basis, a constant stream of new believers. It says they were adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Meeting at church together and worshiping together each day. And then it even says, and getting to hang out afterwards and having great food together, right? Here in Bakersfield, that would probably mean going to DeWars together. My wife and I had the privilege last night of being here. You know, we don't live here anymore, but I grew up in Bakersfield. My wife's from Northern California, so she didn't know about the wars until I introduced her to it. So every, every time we're in town, we try to go have a scoop, and so we were there last night. But can you imagine, they would have to open up even more to wars in town if all these people were hanging out after the services, going there. What a joyous time it must have been, and Peter and John, leaders of this church in Jerusalem, had to have been on top of the world trying to figure out what to do with all this new growth, right? And then came an event that stirred up a little trouble, and we read about that when we get to Acts chapter three, verse one. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Some other translations say at three o'clock in the afternoon. So why so specific? What was the deal with this ninth hour of the day? Well, the Jewish day started, historically you can see where the Jewish day started, at about 6 a.m. in the morning, and then it ended at sunset. And so the ninth hour of the day would have been three o'clock in the afternoon, but that time had a further significance because all the way back to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they each started a prayer time. Abraham in the morning, Isaac in the afternoon, and Jacob, I mean, Isaac in midday, and Jacob in the afternoon. And that became tradition for Jewish people to pray at those times of day, and they would go to the temple to do so. So remember, you got all these people gathered in Jerusalem during this time, and all these new believers who had been going to the temple regularly all of their lives, and they didn't have anywhere else to gather because they didn't have a place where they could all meet together. So they just kept going to the temple every day to pray and worship together, and now to fellowship together with the other new believers who were coming in the midst of all the Jewish people that were there. What a great ministry opportunity, huh? So they were all there at the temple, and on this one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple. That's the, that's the significance of the ninth hour. It would have been a really busy time. 
And then it says what happened on that particular day because Peter and John had an encounter that changed a bunch of lives. In Acts 3, chapter 2, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now this verse brings up a couple things for us to consider. First of all, who was the lame man? Second, what was wrong with him? And then how long had he been been that way? Well, the the verse kind of explains those three things for us. First of all, we see that he was crippled and he couldn't walk. He had to be carried. It says that he had to be carried. And he was brought there every day so that he could beg money from the people on their way to the temple. Giving alms, he was begging money. And as people would walk into the temple, which again, it was a busy time of the day, lots of people going in and out of that temple, so it was probably a lot of foot traffic. And a lot of foot traffic in the area, in the location where this beggar was, meant this was probably a pretty good gig for him, right? Probably because the Jewish people also had this part of their religion where they were, they were expected. It was kind of required of them to give money to the needy. And so they might feel obligated as they're walking into the temple to pray to throw a little bit of money in this guy's bucket. And so this was a great gig for him and he had been doing it for a long time. So the question is, how long had he been doing it? Well, if we skip ahead to Acts 4.22, we find out how long he had been doing it. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. More than 40 years old. And it says he was being carried to the temple day after day to beg for money. Now, if you take into consideration that maybe he wasn't doing that as a little child, but even if he got to be a teenager and then started going to the, being carried to the temple to beg, he could have been doing this for 25 years or more. People expected to give him money and him sitting there at the temple gate, crippled, couldn't walk for himself. He probably became part of the scenery, right? As the, all these people are walking in, they probably knew him. They probably knew his name. They maybe knew his story. Peter and John probably knew him when they encountered him. And you know what? I would propose that some people might get annoyed with him too. (laughs) If you guys were walking in here Sunday after Sunday and right out here in front of Res Church, somebody was sitting on the ground begging, it might become a little bit annoying. I'm sure some of you would give him money and the church would figure out ways to minister to him. But sometimes that kind of thing can get on our nerves a little bit too, right? And on this day, when Peter and John encountered him, this particular beggar, this crippled beggar, he received something that he didn't ask for and he certainly didn't expect. And let's go on and read about that. Acts 3.3 says this. Seeing Peter and John about... Oh, yeah, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, 
walking and leaping and praising God. Now, if I was a younger man, I might demonstrate that for you, <laughs> leaping up. <laughs> but uh, on this particular day, that's what happened. Now, Peter and John didn't do anything elaborate. What God did was miraculous, right? But Peter and John didn't do anything elaborate. What they did was actually kind of simple. They noticed him and they spoke to his need. They noticed him and they spoke to his need. That's powerful. I'm sure that it was significant for the people who saw it though. Completely unexpected, right? This lame man had become part of the backdrop. He blended in and no one would have ever imagined that he could actually be healed. They just thought it was part of the deal to encounter this guy as they're walking into the temple to pray. And then in Acts 3, 9 to 10, we read this. All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Yeah, it was something they couldn't explain. Sure, they would be filled with wonder and amazement. Imagine if you're walking into that temple and you see this out of the corner of your eye, Peter reaching over to grab this guy and as he starts to lift him up, he springs into the air and is running around the place screaming about how God's healed him. What would happen today? Every cell phone would be out filming, right? <laughs> Lots of viral videos going online over this situation that they saw at the temple that day that no one expected. And then throughout the rest of chapter three, Peter boldly declares this message and the power of Jesus to the huge crowd that's now gathered, many of whom who directly witnessed the healing, others who might have just been seeing the results of it, but yet it was powerful just seeing the results of it. But that's when the religious leaders started to get really concerned. They thought that they had successfully gotten rid of this movement of Jesus. They had gone to some great lengths maybe a couple months earlier. That's really all the distance is probably between when Jesus died and rose from the grave and when this happened. Nobody knows for sure, but it's probably around two to three months later when this was going on. And they had gone to great lengths to get rid of Jesus in hopes that his followers would give up after Jesus was gone and that this whole movement would stop. Because, and then now, right before their eyes, Peter and John go right to the temple and this thing happens. And they were starting to lose control again. So of course, they're gonna get a little bit bothered by that. More and more people are choosing to give their lives to Christ now. And Peter and John are right there in the midst of it. And it's challenging the, the leader's authority. So the leaders got ticked off. <laughs> Peter and John, they had Peter and John arrested. And in Acts 4, 1 to 3, we see this. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Okay, so now for just a moment, let's try to put ourselves, I guess it would be in the sandals of these <laughs> religious leaders of the time. Here they, they know this thing is getting out of control, they decide they're gonna take into, into their own hands and have Peter and John arrested. They throw them in jail for the night. They get them safely tucked away and then these guys go home. They maybe get some cold dinner at their house knowing that the next morning they're gonna have to maybe get some rest. 
They know the next morning they're gonna have to come in and figure out what to do with these guys and how they can get this thing stopped before that snowball keeps rolling downhill and more and more people are following this thing. And so they decide to have the trial the next morning. It's kind of a trial setting we're gonna read about. In Acts 4.4. Oh no, I'm sorry, I skipped a part here. This is, the, this is a great part. I can't skip this. The, um, they get these guys tucked away in jail and they're thinking maybe this will all go away in the morning and then this is what happens in Acts 4.4. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. <laughs> so as these guys think they have it under control and they, they maybe in the morning can get a handle on it, 5,000 more people come to Christ because of what they had seen. So you can imagine what these leaders were going through. And then the next day we come into the trial period where their only hope at this point was if they can control Peter and John after a night in jail and Peter and John go into court, maybe they'll be intimidated. Maybe they'll come to their senses and this whole thing could quietly go away and maybe the followers would dissipate then into the woodwork. That's what they were hoping for. But what happened? Now that takes us back all the way to what we read in the beginning. So that's the backdrop of where we wanted to go today. So in Acts 4 or 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now basically this is a courtroom drama. It was called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of religious, religious political leaders that would get together. They would bring people that were doing something that they didn't like in. They would question them and then they would decide what kind of a sentence for them. So basically it's a courtroom. And on this particular day, they have Peter and John standing before them. They probably selected one of their members, probably a bright legal mind who was really good at twisting people's words and trapping them into a corner. And then this guy asked the question, by what power or by what name did you do this? Sometimes it's important to know the answer of a, to a question before you ask it. <laughs> Especially in a courtroom, right? If a lawyer asks in a, in a courtroom a question that they don't know what the answer is, they might just get an answer that kind of ruins their case. And that's exactly what happened on this day when they asked this question. And I can imagine John sitting there at the table kind of chuckling a bit as Peter stands up to give his answer because <laughs> John knew what was coming. They certainly didn't know what was coming. And in Acts 4, 8 to 10, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all of the people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. Amen. Now that was the kind version. Peter boldly declared that in front of these, this courtroom, but that was really kind of a kind version of it. I think that what Peter probably really wanted to say was, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> Can't you see what's going on here? Can't you see that it's bigger than you are? Can't you see that this man who was crippled for 40 years is standing before you well? And you ask me how that happened? 
Well, let me tell you how it happened. It happened because of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You remember that guy that you guys had killed a couple months ago? He's the one that did it. He's the one that healed this man, right? That's kind of the, what I picture Peter doing. That would be more fun. But Peter was kind, because I think we have the words that Peter said. But Peter got in their face a little bit, didn't he? And he proclaimed Jesus right in front of them, and that was not the answer they wanted to hear. But it was an amazing answer, and Peter hit them right where they lived. This was going to challenge everything they were about. This could potentially destroy their standing in the community as more and more people caught on to what was really going on here. And they had nothing to say about it. Peter goes on to say in, verse four, in chapter 4, verse 11, and this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter, the defendant in this courtroom, he ripped into the members of the Sanhedrin in a way that was a direct challenge to everything they stood for. He was telling them, look guys, Jesus is the most important piece of everything you guys have been trying to accomplish for years. And when he showed up to fulfill it all, you missed it. And there is salvation in no one else. Jesus is the only one that can save anybody. All of your religious rules, all of your striving to follow the law, all of your concerns about whether other people follow every little piece of the law like you have put it together, none of that's gonna matter anything. What matters is that Jesus came and fulfilled all that stuff and he's our only way to salvation. Now you can see why these leaders couldn't stand for that, right? So it goes on and it tells us how the people responded. Not how the leaders responded. We know how the leaders responded, but how the people responded. And it comes to the cool part of this that we haven't seen yet. Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And it says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Amen. That's the part of this passage that I can really relate to. And I think that you can really relate to it too because it gives people like me and you hope, right? Because we are those common uneducated men. Even though some of us have some education behind our names, we're still in the real world common, uneducated, ordinary people. And Peter and John were certainly that. They were just run-of-the-mill fishermen. And yet God chose them and then used them to do this extraordinary thing with this beggar and to stand up and proclaim who it was that actually did it through them in a way that challenged everything. It really turned everything upside down. But the people, it says the people perceived that they were uneducated, common men. And that word perception is important and I, I have to ask the question, what do people in today's world perceive about us as Christians? It's kind of scary when you think about that because the world promotes, doesn't promote a very good perception of us, right? Nowadays, as evangelical Christians, we've now become a voting block, <laughs> right? And as a voting block, people have labeled us 
as being bigoted or judgmental or out of touch, all kinds of other negative things that you've probably heard them say about us. And it's up to us to figure out how to change that perception as we live next door to our neighbors and as we work with the people we work with, as we go to school with people that we go to school with. It's up to us to show them what common, ordinary people who care about Jesus and care about others are like. And that can change that perception one at a time. I know my wife for years has had a teacher friend of hers. She's heard talk about things that are in the news or whatever, and she's heard them mention things about Christians. And then when somebody figures out, wait, we're talking about Heidi, that's not really her, but yet that's what I think Christians are. So we, we need to um, change that perception, don't we? So what was it about Peter and John that changed that perception of people? It says the people were astonished. Now I'm gonna give you a little Greek lesson here. If we could have our Greek word up there. Astonished, the Greek word here, Vance will appreciate this, I'm using a Greek word, right? Um, Vance and I go way back, so I can say that. <laughs> Astonished is the word thaumatso, and it means to wonder, wonder, to marvel, or to admire. And it had with us the idea that, it had with the word the idea that it led you to more. Not only was it something that was amazing, but it, it caused you to wonder more about what it was. It'd be an example of if you're up in the mountains and you're looking up at the night sky and you see all the stars up there. Heidi and I, a couple years ago, had the privilege of taking a vacation to Sedona, Arizona. And we're out there in the middle of the desert and you can actually see the Milky Way. It was amazing. Because where we live in Southern California, you don't really get to see that much. <laughs> we don't even get to see the stars, right? But you're looking up at the sky and you think, man, that is beautiful. It's amazing. But then the next thought that comes into your head is, there's gotta be more. Where did that come from? Who put it there? What's that all about? Well, that's the idea of being astonished. So the people in their perception that these guys, Peter and John, were common, ordinary people that had done this extraordinary thing and then were able to stand up and proclaim it as Jesus having worked through them in a powerful way, that not only was something special, but it astonished the people, it says because they figured out that Peter and John were just these common everyday people. So it had to be something bigger than them and it pointed them to want to know what was bigger than them. And then it gives us the kicker at the end of that verse. It says, the people recognized that they, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. That's awesome. <laughs> now Peter and John had the privilege of being with Jesus personally, right? They got to hang out with him in the flesh. We don't get to do that, but we certainly get to be with Jesus. Jesus actually, or it's, it reminds us of in the book of James, in James chapter 4, 8, it says, draw near to Jesus and he'll draw near to you. We get to be with him through his word and through him speaking to us, through his Holy Spirit, through other people, those kinds of things. So we get to be with Jesus even though not physically. But because Peter and John had been with Jesus, they were now able to confidently and boldly ask, I mean, boldly talk about who Jesus was. And in that situation, it got them in a little trouble with the political and religious elite. That even sounds a little familiar to today's world, doesn't it? <laughs> but the common people, they loved it. And it caused more and more of them to follow Jesus. So what's the bottom line for us? I think these verses are 
telling us five things that we need to consider for our lives. And we're gonna frame these in your theme, which is go. I think it's telling us to go and be with Jesus. Now, being with Jesus means something different for each one of us today. Some of you might be here and, and you're thinking through all this talk about Jesus that maybe, maybe I don't really understand who Jesus is first and foremost in my life. I, I wanna know, I wanna hear more, but I don't really know for sure if I've ever asked Jesus to be my savior. Maybe that's your step towards being with Jesus. Maybe for some of the rest of us, being with Jesus is figuring out a way that we can actually read his word and, and maybe pray more. You know, those sound like Sunday school answers, we call them. But the reason they're Sunday school answers is they're really good answers. <laughs> that's how we grow closer to Jesus, right? Is we, we look at his word, we apply it to our lives, we get other people around us that can help us with that. We communicate with him by talking with him about everything. Not just about our food before we eat, but about everything. So maybe that's you today and you need to take that one step closer to Jesus and be with him in a different way. I think the second thing it's telling us to do is to be ordinary. What? You said be ordinary. I'm, I'm supposed to hear aspirational things when I go to church, right? What'd you learn today in church? Oh, the pastor told me to be ordinary. <laughs> That's not much fun. We're supposed to be warriors, right? We're supposed to be kingdom makers. We're supposed to be all that you can be, all that stuff. And yet I'm telling you to be ordinary. Well, all those other things are important and they're, and they're in the word. But you know what? If we're not being ordinary people that others can relate to, none of those other things make sense. So I think these verses are calling us to be ordinary people. Ordinary people that others can relate to. That we love Jesus, but we still have all that stuff going on in our lives that cause us to not have it all together. But we're able to figure that out and figure out how to make a difference in other people's lives by being ordinary. Third thing I think this is saying to us is to pray for God to lead us to people who need him. And then do exactly what Peter and John did. To notice them and to speak to their need. To notice them and to speak to their need. Fourth thing is that we're needing to go and trust that God will use us to do extraordinary things. Now this progression I just talked about, one through four, there's one more that we'll get to in a moment. But this progression is something that I get to see all the time when I take students on mission trips. We have these students come with us and they sometimes don't know much about their faith. They sat in a church or a Christian school somewhere and heard a presentation from someone like me telling them, encouraging them to think about going on a mission trip, jump-starting their faith by seeing how God wants to use them. And they have the courage to pursue that. And then they come on one of our trips. And through the course of that, they learn what it means to be with Jesus. And because they're living with a group of 25, 30 other students, they learn what it means to be ordinary. <laughs> and they learn what it means to get on each other's nerves and that kind of stuff sometimes. And, um, and they have a great summer. They see for the first time that God really wants to use them in a powerful way. I think of this girl, Kayla mentioned earlier that she, we had the opportunity to be with her on our team that last summer and we were in Eastern Europe. We had a young girl named Kylie on our team. 13 year old girl, youngest girl on the team. And she was 
an amazing girl, but when she came to us, she was a little bit of afraid of her own shadow. And yet she started growing in her relationship with Christ. She started having a great time with the team. She started having a great time during training camp, learning more and more about herself, learning more and more about Jesus, learning how to talk to people about Jesus in a normal, ordinary way. And then we made it to Eastern Europe and about the third day we were there, we'd gone out for ministry every day and ministry in some of those cases looks like just walking up to people and starting conversations and trying to lead that conversation into a a bit of a spiritual conversation so you can talk to somebody about your faith. And of course, just like you would be, the students are really scared to do that. But Kylie kind of embraced that and really wanted to do that, was praying hard to do that. But the whole team was discouraged because they didn't see a lot of results. And we kept telling them, look, it doesn't matter whether there's results or not. It's your job just to share your faith. God will take care of the results. And a few days into it, the team's getting really discouraged. And young Kylie, she actually comes and asks me after one evening we were doing the street ministry performance drama thing just to draw a crowd and then afterwards talking to people. We were almost done. And Kylie says to me, Jeff, there's a lady sitting over there by herself. Can I take one of the other students and go talk to her? I'm not sure if she saw our performance or not. I said, yeah, Kylie, go ahead. Well, a little while later, Kylie comes back to me and just quietly looks at me and says, Jeff, that young lady accepted Jesus. (laughs) I said, way to go, Kylie. (laughs) I said, Kylie, God used you in an incredible way. And Kylie, I asked her, I said, Kylie, don't say anything to the rest of the team about this yet. Wait till we get home, because you know how discouraged they've been. Wait till we get home, and we'll talk about the day and talk about their frustrations, and then we'll let you share. And she said, okay, okay. She got into it with me. So we get back to the, where we were staying that night, and everybody was sharing, you know, I tried to have conversations. Nobody cared. Nobody seemed to wanted to, to talk to me. Or, you know, I, I had a great conversation with somebody, but I didn't quite know how it could get to that point where I could share my faith. And then I said, I think Kylie has something to say to us. (laughs) And Kylie told her story. And you should have seen the difference in the attitude of those students. We could not yank them away from ministry opportunities after that. Because they saw ordinary little shy Kylie at 13 years old that God used her to do an extraordinary thing. And I could tell you hundreds of stories about how that works over the years. You've had students from this church over the years that have gone. Your two hosts this morning, (laughs) Emma and Kayla, they've each gone on multiple royal servants trips and they could tell you stories. When we live life in an ordinary common way, whether we're a student or a young adult or one of us more mature adults, God uses us in amazing ways when we're willing to trust him to do extraordinary things. Then the fifth thing I think this is telling us to go, and this one is a great one, relax and enjoy the ride. What do I mean by that? Well, tomorrow morning, if you wake up and your attitude is, what do I got to do today to serve Jesus? I don't have time today to think about reading my Bible. I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm afraid that people will reject me. What if someone comes to me and says, what must I do to be saved? I wouldn't have a clue what to tell them. <laughs> you know, if that's our attitude that this Christian life thing is a chore, then life is no fun that way. Right? If, if our attitude tomorrow morning when we wake up is to say, wow, God, thank you for waking me up this morning. A few years ago, I had some significant um, health problems and had a heart issue that thankfully God has worked through with me and it's become a lot better. So now when I wake up in the morning, I often think, wow, God, thank you for waking me up in the morning. 
Unfortunately, sometimes it takes something like that in our lives to make us think that way. But if we wake up tomorrow morning and think, God, thank you for waking me up in the morning. What a great thing it is. Lord, how do I get to serve you today? Who are you gonna bring in my path that I can tell them about your love? What do I get to see in your word today that's gonna change my life? That's when life gets fun and that's when we can relax and enjoy the ride because God's gonna do some amazing things through us when that happens. And I don't know how God's gonna work in your life. Your, your pastors here and your elders and your leadership, they don't know how God's gonna work in your life, but I do know some things. And I'm gonna take us back to a few weeks ago. During the course of your sermon series on Go, I've been sitting in my home in Southern California watching them afterwards just because I was gonna be part of the series. I wanted to see what everybody else was saying. And a few weeks ago, Pastor Daniel challenged you guys about the goals and the vision that your leadership team has put together. And it's an amazing document. If you haven't seen one of those yet, you need to find one of those and read through that. It's, it's pretty special. But I do know this. The people that are gonna be hanging out and that newly renovated Peacock Park in a couple years that you guys are gonna be part of renovating, they're gonna need you to be with Jesus and they're gonna need you to be common, ordinary people that can relate to them. And then they're gonna need you to go hang out at the park with them and get to know them. I know that the people who go to, the students who go to Bakersfield College that's kind of the people I work with on a regular basis and even younger students. I know that they need you to be with Jesus and they need you to figure out ways to reach them, figure out ways to bring them close to Jesus and figure out ways to involve them in the ministry here of your church and be those common, ordinary people that God can use to do extraordinary things with the students at Bakersfield College. I know that the people who pump gas for their cars in the 10-minute window that you guys heard about around your church, they need you to be a common, ordinary, everyday dude or dudette <laughs> that while you're pumping gas, you can have conversations with them and point them to Jesus. That's what they need. This one's a little more personal for me. I know that the people who have kids that live down the street from you, that play with your kids, that go to school with your kids, that play sports with, they dance and dance teams with. I know that those kids and their parents need you to be with Jesus. And they need you to be ordinary people that they can relate to so that they can be drawn to Jesus because of your life. And the reason this is personal for me is when I was in first grade, living over here by East Bakersfield High School, my mom, my single mom and my grandmother who lived with us and my older brother moved over to West Bakersfield, not too far from West High School. And uh, amen. <laughs> Actually, there might be an amen for this. We lived on the corner of Bell Terrace and, or near the corner of Bell Terrace and Real. So Millie Munsey Elementary School. That's my alma mater. Amen. Okay. Um, the people down the street from you and their kids that was me. When we moved into that new neighborhood, family down the street who had three boys that were all near me in age, as I was playing with them in the street, they and their parents decided to invite the kid down the street to church. And that started me on a pathway where through elementary school, middle school, on into high school, I went to church with that family. They became my second family and I went on family vacations with them. And I went to summer family camp with them through our church. And 
because of their, the mom of that family is actually the one who, when I was nine years old at a vacation Bible school, led me to Jesus. Because they were the people who cared about people who lived down the street from them and were common, ordinary people that I could relate to as a second family. And I'm grateful for them. And it was later on in college when I came here to this church and people here did the same thing for me, took an interest in me and helped me grow in my faith. That's the kind of people we need to be is people who do that. And then the last thing is, and this will tie directly back to Pastor Daniel's message from a few weeks ago. The people in your carpools and your cubicles and your cul-de-sacs. Did I get that right? Okay. The people in your carpools and your cubicles and your cul-de-sacs, they need you to be with Jesus. And they need you to be common, ordinary people. Just like Peter and John were, expecting that God will use you to do extraordinary things. Why? Because you've been with Jesus. Then the coolest thing about this is, even goes back to your theme verse for this series of Go. Jesus knew when he gave us this verse, the Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission, we call it, and it's really, it should really be called the Everyday Commission instead of the Great Commission, because sometimes in churches, we look at this and we think this is for people who go out to do missions in the jungles of Africa. We think it's only for those special people, missionaries or pastors, who God has called to be in what we would call full-time vocational ministry, right? But really, that's not what it was at all, and here's why. When Jesus said these words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When he said those words, he had, he had already died a little while ago. This was one of what they call the post-resurrection appearances, and he had announced that it was gonna happen. After the resurrection, he actually said to people, tell the, tell the disciples, and eventually they told other people that I'm gonna be in Galilee on the mountain and I'm gonna address the crowd. Basically, that's what happened in Matthew, early Matthew 28 at the resurrection. So later on, he gets to this place where he's delivering this message to the people on the mountain. Now think about this. This had been a few weeks since he had died and now all of a sudden publicly announced that he's gonna be there and talk to people. The crowd probably got pretty big. This is the dead guy who is now alive that's gonna speak? I wanna go check this out. What does he have to say, right? That's probably the attitude. So there might've been a lot of people on this mountain when he gave these words. And he said, go therefore. Now, Jesus knew that these people that he was speaking to were not gonna go on a boat the next morning to Africa to become a missionary. He knew that they were not gonna get on a plane and go to the jungles of South America. Jesus knew that they were gonna go back to their business, back to their home, back to their family, back to their school, back to their neighborhood, and he was telling them basically, as you are going about all that stuff, go make disciples, point people closer to Jesus. That's what he said. He called all of us every day to be doing that, but then the coolest part about it all is he gave us a promise. He says, I am with you always, to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus knew that that 
that great commission he gave us or that command he gave us to go out and do this, what you guys have been talking about for the last few weeks, that command of go, he knew that that was gonna be intimidating for us. He knew that it was a little scary at times for us to do things like that. He knew that it would be hard for us to figure out how to do it. So then he gives us this cool promise where he says, you know what, as you're going, realize that I'm with you every day, every moment of every day to the end of the age. And that's why we can be confident that we can go out and we can be with Jesus, we can be ordinary, we can pray for people and speak to their needs, and we can trust that God will use us to do extraordinary things. And then we get, on top of all that, we get to relax and enjoy the ride. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and to see what it says to us. And I pray, Lord, that it would be real to us and that we would understand that as we go, you are with us like you've called us to be with you. And I pray we would go with that confidence in mind and that you would lead us to the people around us that need to know who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.